Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. This week's episode was recorded on location in London, England, which is where one finds Chris and Ben Blaine. As filmmakers, they go by the shared moniker The Blaine Brothers, and their first feature is the singular Nina Forever, starring Abigail Hardingham and Kean Barry as Holly and Rob, a new couple whose relationship is haunted, quite literally, by Rob's dead ex. That film is available on iTunes right now, and after you're done listening to this podcast, you should go out and watch it. Or stay in. Watch it. Just watch it. I have never seen anything like it, and it's great. Chris and Ben picked Trainspotting, Danny Boyle's spectacular 1996 adaptation of Irvin Welsh's cult novel about heroin addicts knocking around Edinburgh. Alternately exhilarating and horrifying, it opened in Cannes like an atomic bomb, paying off the promise of Shallow Grave, Boyle's previous collaboration with screenwriter John Hodge, producer Andrew McDonald, and star Ewan McGregor, and instantly putting McGregor, Johnny Lee Miller, Robert Carlyle, Kevin McKidd, Kelly McDonald, and Ewan Bremner at the top of every casting agent's must-have list. It's so energetic and ebullient that I am having a lot of trouble accepting that this year will mark the 20th anniversary of the film. But I am old, and that's happening a lot lately. Oh, and just to keep them straight in your head, Ben has a lower voice and will be the first person you hear. Chris sounds a little softer. This is someone else's movie. So, um, we chose Train Spotting yesterday, actually. We were thinking of different films, yeah. but um, we started to realize that it was a really good one to talk about because of the way it's sort of. Um, it's part of a, uh, a British tradition of, of filmmaking that's definitely affected us. The yeah, way that we make stuff. and I think also a British tradition of filmmaking that a lot of people kind of... I suppose it's easy to confuse because there's the tradition of British filmmaking that a lot of people kind of recognise, the kind of the Ken Loach... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Ken Loach mould, you know. Right. But a lot of people kind of go, what is British filmmaking? It's either posh people in history right. or it's working-class people now yeah. and everything's grim. And it's really easy to think of Trainspotting as another film in that mould because... It's you know it's it's set it often feels quite a contemporary film and it's kind of like it's people taking heroin and housing estate it's tough but actually it's a fantastical film and the kind of like the links it links into this kind of like other type of British filmmaking which is surreal and fantastical and creative and kind of like it it, it feels like it kind of inherits from um, Dan Spotter. Yeah, mm. De- yeah, Dennis Potter massively, and um, de- 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 what am I thinking, Chris? The de- Monty Kubrick. Python, yeah, Monty Python, but also Clockwork Orange, yeah, and Lindsay Anderson as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah Lindsay sure. Anderson especially, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that sort of sense of, particularly with like Lindsay Anderson and, and um, uh, Danny Kubrick, that's a sense of this kind of like young man fighting against everything, and and how and that there's that real sort of surrealism that comes out of that frustration, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And and like Clockwork Orange, the central character, the narrator figure, is an incredibly articulate, incredibly intelligent person who is railing against, you know, not just the system that he's in and the society that he's trapped in, that, that, that incredible monologue, which apparently used to be in the middle of the film, and then they realized that they needed an opening, so they put it there. And it does, it just galvanizes you. It, it's it's an absolutely incredible monologue, but the person delivering it, like Renton is such a fantastic figure to be 
Young and connect to because yeah. he does seem he's very watchful, he's very observant, he's very smart, but he also seems really, really likable. Yeah. Uh, and that's our that's the way you get in. The same way Alex charms you into Clockwork Orange until you realize what he does for fun. Yeah, I mean, and you were saying this earlier when we were discussing it this morning. Actually, in both cases, that's, that's actually casting as much. As yeah, that. yeah, oh. you're kind of going like, uh, if you didn't have someone like you and McGregor, who. Actually, a lot of the time in other films, you watch him and you're like, oh, he seems a bit much, you know? He mm. seems a little bit like, oh, I'm not quite sure if I uh, enjoy him as much. Uh, and then you're kind of like, okay, why is that? And you're like, well, in Trainspotting, he's um, still his incredibly likable self, but his character isn't likable at all. Yeah. <laughs> he just completely fucks everyone over. Yeah. Like, there's nothing that he does uh, that's nice for anyone. And uh, he doesn't like anyone either. He's just a complete misanthrope. And uh, yeah, in 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 somebody else's you know face, you'd be kind of oh, this is a really down film, and you know I just don't like that guy. But there is just something so inherently likable about you and McGregor, and uh, it's Michael McDowell, isn't it? Yeah, Malcolm. Yeah, Malcolm yeah, McDowell. McDowell. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, same with him. And like, cause yeah, he's if as well, isn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like you know that and, that, and that lucky man as well again. Yeah. Again, he he's another one of those actors who just has that incredible charisma that you're quite happy to watch him kicking a tram to death in the subway and you're like yeah I'm probably sort of feel, you know on your side kind of and yeah. then hang on wait a minute no I'm not I'm not at all how yeah. did you do that to me but you sit there and you think oh I'm sure he has a good reason yeah, <laughs> he, just, yeah. He, he can't he can't be mean I like him but yeah. that, that identification with the, the sociopath essentially and, and Renton I think the more time we spend with him, the, the variations that we see in who he is when he's high and when he's not and when he's finally off yeah. there's there is some redemption, but he's not a good person. No. He'll be paying for that for a long time. Yeah, but I think also the interesting thing is, like, you get to understand, like, his mates are a pain in the ass, And it's like, it's not like you kind of go, oh, he's being mean to nice people. Mm. You go, you know, Sick Boy has no real redeeming characteristics. Neither does Begbie. Yeah. Like, Spud's a sweetheart, you know. And he's, and he's nice to Spud. Yeah, he's, he's nice the one who's protected. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, and, like, it definitely is a story in which you go along and you're like, yeah, I don't think you should be friends with these guys and he does then screw them over and you're like yeah you know like that's sort of fair enough yeah but like i suppose the point you know so like there's there's it's not like you're still going oh he's being horrible to nice people he's being horrible to horrible people yeah but he certainly is being horrible to horrible people and there never is any point when he's nice to anybody you know it's like the only thing that he does in the entire film that is actually kind of like an altruistic act is leaving that money for Spud at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think he's also... I, I, he's horrified to find out how young Diane is. So there's that too, right? There's a level. That's but true, that's yeah. when we see him figure out what the line is. And, yeah, and yeah. Because we have, as you say, because we have Begbie and, and Sick Boy, who are monsters, <laughs> you can appreciate Renton. Like, that's why we root for him, because there is a, just a tiny bit of... of Maybe not good, but you know, chaotic neutral in him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is always a question, isn't there, about uh, nice little role play reference coming in there. Yeah, like, <laughs> huge nerd. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, characters. How you can get away with having somebody that is actually quite a mean character, really, is well, the people that are around them are meaner. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which again is what Clockwork Orange does massively. It's kind yeah. of like he goes, "Here's the horrible person." Now the state's going to be really horrible. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, I kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's an easy, it's yeah. an easy rooting choice. We're just, we're still with, we're with the guy whose brain has been messed around with. Yeah, uh, yeah, and sympathetic to him in the end, ultimately. 
Yeah. I've I've seen um I've seen I was going to say I've seen Clockwork Orange with an audience that didn't quite know how to play it, which was fascinating. Yeah. It was the uh, it was a 40th anniversary screening at the at MoMA oh, wow. uh, in New York. The things that are funny didn't play as laughs, and yeah. the things that are horrifying didn't play as horrifying. People just sort of sat there and took it All right. and tried to figure out what the reaction of everybody else in the room. Like I could feel the room yeah. shifting, uh, and then with Train Spotting. The first time I saw that was in Toronto in 96, in the, in the, I guess it would have been June when the press screened, 10 o'clock in the morning, and we just went out on a high, a total searing high, um, the 40 of us who were there in this yeah. big theater. And then I went back and saw it with an audience a couple of weeks later, and I had the same experience as the Clockwork Orange. They didn't quite know how to take it for the first 45 minutes or so. Mm. And then, I think it was after the... Um, after the scene of Spud in the bed, uh, in the, in the, yeah. with that huge button at the end, yeah. with the flipping of the sheets, yeah. then they laughed, and it just <laughs> didn't stop. Even yeah. after the even after the baby dies, after Don dies, they were still with it. They were so completely into it, um, and it was really scary at the end because people came. You know, you come out of the theater pumped, and you're yeah. you're looking to break stuff. I think. And, and <laughs> yeah, kind of excited. Yeah, I suppose it's such a, a strange film in a way that it's so about friendship and being in a group of friends that um i mean in the end obviously yeah he needs to get away from them but actually it really celebrates in the fun that you have in your friendship groups Hmm. and even if you're not taking heroin or having babies die on you you know you don't need to be at all of that extreme or indeed having like a psychopath who you know is living around your house you're like there's been those times when you've had somebody stay around at yours and you really want them to go you know like you can really empathize with every single one of those characters um even though what they're doing is usually hopefully more extreme than what anybody else actually has to live uh in the audience yeah yeah it's a a film with a weird tension though between like all the way and in all sorts of different ways between it it's often saying two things simultaneously, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's like that exactly that where you enjoy the friends and you kind of you walk out of the film and you're like, yeah, that's a film about a really tight group of friends. But when you watch it coldly and break down what happens, it's for people who hate each other. Like they never do anything like you know, like they're always screwing each other over and the whole message of the film is get away from these people and the kind of the conclusion is very definitely he gets away from them and that's a good thing and you feel pleased that he's finally escaped from these awful people and yet at the same time they're all really good fun and, and you love those people yeah. it's really and it's it's I think it's fascinating that it sits and I mean again there's the other thing about um, when he moves to London he has the, that lovely bit where he says you know there, there was no society and I was really glad not to be part of it and that's such a kind of there's this really fascinating thing about his relationship to Thatcherism, which, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously it's set, actually set in the 80s, it's sort of the height of kind of all of that. And where it sits politically is really fa- is really complex because, again, what he sort of, he is actually sort of almost a kind of like a really kind of like pro-Thatcherite figure in terms mm-hmm. of how he behaves. And yet at the same time, he's sort of there to exemplify, in some ways he also exemplifies everything that's wrong with that ideology and yeah it's that fascinating thing of he never you know it never the film never quite says one thing or the other and and just sits there giving you everything Mm -hmm. and I think that's really it makes you work quite hard as an audience yeah well it's interesting in terms of um, 
whether the reaction to like Clockwork Orange, where you're going 40 years on, and obviously it's a film that's had a lot of opprobrium about it mm. for many years, and to the point where you know people are, uh, you've definitely got the sense of no, you're not allowed to laugh at that. That's not allowed. Yeah. So I can see how you could be sitting in an audience being like, oh, I'm not sure yeah. if I should be saying anything. And Train Spotting, uh, I suppose it did have a whole load of opprobrium about it when it came out. Yeah, it? it really did. Yeah. Mm. Which was all, you know, well, it's glamorizing drug use. Yeah. Which you can only say if you haven't seen it. I mean, that's it's kind of incredible that every politician then subsequently had to say, well, I haven't seen it, but I've seen the trailer and it looks like everyone's having fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guy's yeah. arm falls off. Remember that? No, no, you didn't see that part. Yeah, no, no, there's, there's plenty of uh, horrific stuff that happens in it, but I suppose it's kind of, um, it's interesting how much the uh, the whole film has a musical soundtrack to it where like literally a song will finish and then the next one will start you know like uh, there's there's maybe half a second before the next track jumps in and so all the way you've got this thing that drives you along and makes it feel that much more enjoyable than if you were play you know if you did play that without i mean like i'm trying to think actually so what does play underneath the uh so when the babies died Uh, oh it's a trip-hop mix right or is that a blur going on there is that no, no? It's no. That's what, what you, when he discovers that the baby's died. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The music is earlier in the hallucination. The, the, See, the is that actually yeah. a point at which you don't have music? I think that might be one of the few points yeah. where you don't have music. Yeah. There's definitely yeah. It's definitely the trip hop stuff when he's coming yeah. clean and you've got the baby Diana on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, in other people's hands, you'd be like, I mean, that is quite a a, a, a testing sequence. But that's actually that's yeah. There's yeah, you've got there's, the work I can't remember it. which track it is, but it's when he goes. So you've got the this is you know it was like a full time job, and you've got the this is the guide to how you live on heroin. Yeah. And then that ends and it's like but it wasn't always fun and then she starts screaming right. and that there is yeah you're right there's no music under that and so you think in terms of the film if if it didn't have water war music would you actually enjoy it quite as much yeah. would you have that same propulsion to it Again, when you're you going could, they're using not having music for a very specific reason yeah and it, it very much is that thing of like you could play so much of it for horror and for appallingness and actually, it plays a lot of the things that it doesn't hide from how horrible they are, but you know, it's bright colours, it's music, it's you know, a really nicely, a really nice edit, and you're like, this is. I'm simultaneously going, this is. I mean, like the the worst toilet in Scotland, which sure. is, yeah. I mean, again, a fascinating sequence where you go, you come in there, and that's absolutely horrific, and it's absolutely disgusting. And then you have becomes the most beautiful sequence in the film. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and also, there's that. I mean, that's the first time that it's totally surreal yeah and I, I mean that's one of and again it's what's so nice about it is that no one particularly talks about it as a piece of surrealism and people often kind of you know like the you know the sort of the fantastical things people always like relate back to them taking drugs but at that point he's not actually high I mean the whole point is I'm no he's, longer high I definitely have to shit that's yeah. because I'm not high and yet that suddenly out of nowhere he does this impossible thing and it does this impossible beautiful sequence and I think that's really I think it's yeah, it's just really exciting to see a film that, where it can be surreal and it's not kind of like it doesn't have to you don't have to put the brakes on, you don't have to apologise for it, you don't have to explain it, it just does this beautiful thing that's emotionally true. Yeah, and you're going so there's like this huge visual metaphor of your, you know, emotion, the yeah. the, the, the joy that you are getting for actually you know what, I have managed to get those things those bloody things back. Yeah. 
um, from this awful situation, that actually the buzz on that must be pretty high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's um yeah it's the thing that Boyle and and Hodge did together, which they I mean, they haven't worked together in a while, but the thing that John Hodge and Danny Boyle did do was play amorality for joy, like just yeah. shallow grave train spotting. Uh, maybe not so much a life less ordinary, but uh, definitely the the, um, the beach mm, as yeah. well has that Game Boy sequence where yeah. something he's not exactly doing something terrible, but he's fleeing all responsibility and abandoning yeah, yeah. everything in yeah. his life, and it's still fun because he's having fun. And when he comes down, that's when the film goes dark and everything goes terrible. And I just suddenly realized how hard it is to find a copy of the beach, and I really want to watch it again. <laughs> it's, I still think there's some good stuff in it. I'm, I'm really fascinated by by all of Boyle's output, but the films he made with Hodge are, are sort of seething in a different way with mm, yeah. with stuff. I've, I've interviewed Boyle a number of times over the years, and he's he said that you know his running gag when he refers to his own work is that he likes to create specimens rather than characters. He'll just watch people suffer mm. and figure out what they're going to do next, which is sort of summed up perfectly in 127 hours. Yeah, yeah. but it's in you know it happens in Sunshine. It happens. It certainly happens in his earlier films where. Yeah. It's just a question of which move will be made first. And train spotting, although it doesn't present itself as a puzzle piece, it really is moving into that direction where you know you put Renton under the microscope and what is he going to do? Yeah. And how did he get to these points and now what? But he but the film is I mean, as you say, the score is so much part of it. It is done with so much joy and so much yeah. your pulse doesn't slow down and you're not yeah. allowed to stop having fun right up until he wants you to be confronted or to he wants to confront us with this horrible reality yeah yeah, yeah. I mean again I mean, a really good example of that um, is actually um, Begbie mm. where you go at the start Begbie's violence is enjoyable oh yeah it's really good fun to watch and yeah, it's introduced with him casually throwing the glass yeah, over and the freeze shoulder. frame yeah. yeah and it's like hey yeah. uh, you know it's we've all done this yeah happy days um, <laughs> and then also when you get to the bit where it, you know okay so there's a there's like a, a, a brief moment with uh, okay this is the woman who's actually had the glass smash over her head she's full of you know covered in blood yeah but then it just goes straight away into I'm going to have this fight with these two big guys and that's going to be fun and then you don't even watch it you just uh, you watch the friends and uh, you've got a real like um, to be honest the only time I've seen a chair fly like that is in Asterix cartoon <laughs> um, but uh, yeah and, and all the friends are kind of like oh here we are again and you don't pay any attention to the violence yeah, yeah. and then you get to the end and the fight in the pub in London and when he glasses the guy it's really disgusting. Like you, it's kind oh, of it's like horrible. it's a short moment, but like it really feels like you see the th- guy's like chin or throat being cut open, and mm-hmm. it's really yeah, the, the, it cut. So you get the glass into the face, but yeah. then uh, it come. You know, they do cut back to him on the floor, yeah. covered in blood. That they, you know, it's not just once. Oh, okay, we're not going to see that again. It's no, no. Here you go. Here's a close up of him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and you see Spud with his cut hand, like quite. quite you keep yeah. coming back to that as well. You know, and it's like that moment is suddenly really unpleasant and that's I mean totally in the directorial choices and again that's where you get the fantastic when he when Begbie makes him light the cigarette for him and it's the first time when suddenly like like they're both in total silhouette and completely oppositionally shot and you kind of like it's no there's nothing else like that in the whole film and suddenly it's just going it's and it's that really interesting way how as a director you can take a thing and go this this now needs to be tense. This now needs to be. He's actually the baddie. It's like comes to now. He he can be comedy. He can be fun, 
and an annoyance, but now he's evil. Yeah. And it's just like showing that through the shots and through the edit, rather than that needing to be a piece of kind of like cleverly worked plot mechanic of kind of like, oh, you've led us to this revelation. It's like, no, no, we've all sort of known that. Yeah. But it's just you're framing it in a different way now. Yeah. Yeah. It isn't until that moment, I think, that Renton realizes that he that Begbie is a danger to Renton, to him. Yeah. And yeah. so we get, finally get to see it too. Because, in, yeah, in the beginning, the, the first bar fight is, is fun. It's, a, it's yeah. something they'll remember later and laugh about when they're... You know, subsequently sufficiently recovered, yeah. Um, but yeah, now it's now it's scary. Now it's bad. Yeah. So um, I guess the the other question I wanted to ask is, you know, what was your first experience of it? When did you guys see it, and how old were you? Um, so I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm not sure I saw it in the cinema. I know I didn't. I think I didn't actually because I'm a stubborn bastard. So I think it came out and everyone went crazy for it. I think I read the book first. Yeah, you read. The I always have a tendency. I used to, especially mm. whenever films were coming out and they were based on a book. I would read the book. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty certain I read the book first. And the book's amazing. And um, what's so great about it is it's not just told from Renton's point of view. It's not just um, you know in his voice. Uh, it's in every single characters, and they all get their own chapters. And there's a whole load more characters. There's so many different characters who are talking to you uh, directly. And he never starts a chapter by saying, this is Renton, by the way. Yeah. You just know exactly just by the way that they're written, uh, which is like pretty astounding when you've got so many different characters and each and every single one of them is really distinct um, and just from the way that it's been written. Well, yeah, I mean, even to the point of dialect, people have thicker dialects yes. in text. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of incredible in, in plain text to see that. Uh, I read the book afterwards. I came to it later. But, um, yeah, I was I would have been almost... I was 28 maybe, 27, mm. 28 when it came out in Canada. And it was just, you know, I'm I'm 10 years older than the target audience, I suspect, but it's still just the cinema of it just got me. I loved it so much. And and uh, I'd already seen Shallow Grave and was and was waiting for it. And so it played Cannes and there was all this fuffer yeah. about what was happening. And then the studios got right behind it. I'm, I think I'm remembering this correctly. Miramax bought it. And naturally, because they're Miramax in the 90s, they botched the release in North America. They botched the American <laughs> release. Train spotting made. I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but I'm pretty sure it made either 15 or 16 million, and most of that was made in Canada, right. because we Canadians woo, are willing to see a quote unquote foreign movie. You can't do air quotes on a podcast, um, <laughs> but we were willing to. And you know, Shallow Grave had done fairly well in Canada. I think it was a small distributor, but it played forever. Yeah, and they marketed it properly, and they screened it early, and they got word of mouth going, and people went to see it. Whereas in America, um, partially because Miramax, the Weinstein brothers, did what they always do, which is underestimate the viewing public and fix, try to fix this movie that they bought, you know, a completed movie that they acquired. Uh, they, you know, they redubbed the first 20 minutes yeah. uh, with softer versions of the accents, which is unnecessary, yeah. but really stood out. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough that the first time I saw it, we saw can print. So it has subtitles in the in the bar sequence. The one scene, you know, what are you talking about? Football, yeah. um, which it always had, yeah, because yeah. it's so loud. Yeah, that's... the rest of the film apparently there's a subtitled version that was released. I've heard that. Yeah, yeah I've heard that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how true that. If that's just a delightful apocryphal. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, because that's got to love the way that they've done that scene. Because so often you're kind of like, okay, here's a scene. It's in a bar and everybody's talking like we are now, and you're like, you can't hear each other. Yeah, yeah. you can't hear each other. And there you're like, yeah, you can't hear each other. We've put subtitles on as well because. Probably you won't have actually, you know, they yeah, they might not have actually got as much out of uh, yeah, what the conversation saying. as you are. Yeah, but it was 
jarring the second time to listen to. I mean, I hope you guys have never. I know it's never been released in yeah, this no, side I, of the Atlantic. I, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's yeah. still out there, and it's just <laughs> evil. It's a, the first twenty minutes are cleaner uh, in the audio because they've just redubbed all the dialogue. The sound, the the bass sounds is still the same. Yeah, uh, but there's this weird sort of softened Scottish accent thing going on where all the actors are delivering a slightly lighter version of their of their read. Wow. But you can see, like in Carlyle's mouth, the sound doesn't fit because you yeah. can see the burr in his lips. He's just, he's sort of pushing it out. Yeah. And then he's speaking more cleanly on the audio. And it's just, it's terrible. And so I think people go see that and they are immediately put off because you don't know why, but you're not fully connecting to it. It's like bad dubbing. It just doesn't yeah. quite work. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, that's when people shut off and didn't go back to it. And the idea was that they would adjust in the first 20 minutes and then it would sound normal when, right. they, when the regular soundtrack returned. But by that point, nobody was paying attention. They already sort of tuned that <laughs> out. And they cut one of the bounces, or at least one of the bounces of, of Diane on Renton because they wanted to avoid the NC-17. <laughs> as always, that was the thing always. that was the problem. It wasn't oh, the yeah. dead baby oh, yeah. or always. people with, with you know, sl- uh, severed jugular veins. Yeah. yeah, It was the sex. Or the close of the needles going in. No, they were fine with yeah. that. Because, yeah. you know, caution. The, the exact way of how you can cook up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Which, again, yeah. Yeah, no, that's all fine. Yeah crazy because that you know for criminal intent you'd have to actually go out and find the heroine first so it's the movie's not fully responsible but the sex oh you can't show people how to do that that's not right (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah no i could well imagine that it it would go down really well in canada um Mm. we're just used to i mean we had just had reading stones released there with subtitles three or four years earlier yeah so there's something about uh blackly comic work so like uh, you know we've just been touring around with Nina forever mm-hmm. uh, which has underlying black comedy to it and uh, a bit <laughs> but it depends where you go yeah and really yeah and the really interesting bit we always really like to be in the cinema when we uh, when we're there and we watch the film with the audience uh, just to gauge the reaction to see how it actually goes down and the further north you go the funnier it gets okay. so in Scotland Hilarious. Everyone laughing their asses off all the way through, yeah. and the same in Canada. Yeah. But the further south you go, the more serious it gets. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. The more that people, you know, are, you know, uh, jiving on the, uh, in, the uh, yeah, the themes of uh, grief and um, and uh, yeah. What was the? It's like the metaphysical side of stuff as well, yeah. isn't it? You know, like uh, yeah. But definitely the comedy really changes. Like the colder you get. Then the fun rate gets. <laughs> yeah. Well, that um, does explain Canada liking it. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. I had no. I mean, I definitely there is a sadness to it that I got. But oh wow, no, I would yeah. not have thought people wouldn't laugh or just laugh less. Yeah, no, no. We've definitely had some some uh, screenings where there, there's been no laughter. And, yeah. You know that. And that, you're terrified. And you think kind of like, oh god, this is going to be. We've got to do got to do a Q and A now. It's going to be awful. And then <laughs> thankfully, you just get like people just realize, oh right, yeah, no, that question means you totally get you're really engaged you're quite upset oh, okay fine that's how you read it fine that's great you know yeah. take that any response is always beautiful but yeah and we have we have one screening which was for students actually at the <laughs> university where you could really feel the awkwardness in the air and i was wondering actually like in terms of the screenings of clockwork orange and train spying where you're going you've got uh, an audience of people who kind of feel like they they're not allowed to show their reactions yeah because that was the thing that we didn't quite because in our heads nina's always been a film where you kind of go like surely that like the like you know all sorts of people like it and get something from it but we're, we're always kind of confident that like our key audience would be 20 somethings particularly right. like early 20 something you'd be kind of like yeah this is 
you know, your territory, sort of rich for you. And so we kind of went into the screening with students feeling like, oh, are they going to love this? And then you sort of get kind of like, you know, halfway through and you're like, I'm like wow, what is this feeling? You suddenly realise they all know each other because it's, it's the same university right. class and like they've known each other for a couple of years and like, you know, half of them have probably slept with the other half of them or want to sleep with the other half of them. And so you don't have this reaction of kind of like, this is my response to the film. You have what's everyone in this room yeah. thinking about? And like exactly that, yeah, I wonder if like, you know, yeah, the Coen brothers were sat there being like, well, I know that we're sat next to so-and-so from this place and so and like, <laughs> they, if we start giggling, yeah. what are they going to think of us? It's like, yeah. No, it's true, it'll end up on BuzzFeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's amazing. Yeah, I suppose self-consciousness wouldn't, it just, it wouldn't have occurred to me, but yeah, of mm. course, if everybody knows everybody's, plus there's nudity, which always makes people, you know, careful, yeah, uh, or, or uncomfortable, and the I just no, yeah, C- careful. Or there was one screening in uh, in uh, Sitges in Spain where uh, at that festival the audience are very kind of um, oh, yeah. vocal all the way through, and they like clap and cheer at all sorts of different points. Um, and uh, yeah, the first time that uh, you saw um, Abigail's breasts, there was one guy who went. And it's just like it's, I think he expected like half the room to go right. up with him because it's you know, but yeah, it was just him, and it's just like. But I love that he kept it going. He didn't. He didn't. He, there was no shame. It was like, no, I'm committing to this. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm happy. This is why I paid my dollar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Midnight Madness in Toronto does that too. I'm yeah. sure you'll experience it at some point. The the incredibly enthusiastic for anything audience, which yeah. is great, but it also gives you this kind of false positive reading because yeah. they're so stoked from the beginning. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's, uh, I can see, yeah, I can see the filmmaking people, not uncomfortable exactly, but yeah, awkward and self-conscious and just really weird. I saw it, uh, I saw it on a link, so I saw it by myself, but projected, but it was still, it's just like, that's funny and sad at the same time. And there's so much going on that, yeah, I just sunk right into it. I thought it was Mm. one of those experiences where you're just like, I'd love to see this with a crowd to, to see what an audience, how an audience processes this. Yeah. I think, uh, for the... Uh, for the exact um, audience uh, response that we were kind of hoping for if you've got a full room of 150 people then perfect yeah. and uh, yeah it, it feels a little bit like um, this, yeah there's a certain size of sm- when it gets slightly too small that you do get that awkwardness and, and that slight uncomfortableness of oh am I actually allowed to laugh here Yeah. Um, and then when you get even bigger it becomes much more uh, funny, yeah. Because you know, there's so there's enough people that are going to laugh that you're going to just encourage everyone else to. I think. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's 150 seat cinema. One that. That's the peachiest one. Yeah. Nice. Well, and this brings us back to Boyle, which is yeah. you know the idea of cinematic control, where you've created an experience for people and you are working the levers. Like you get to be in control of how people respond, whether they go you know, happy or sad, you yeah. you can sort of gauge the room, but the film is steering. Like, the film is actively steering, and so is Trainspotting, in a way. Oh, Trainspotting really is, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so... It's such a masterful thing that they managed to do with the film, where you're kind of going... So you're coming from a film that... Uh, from a book where um, it goes forwards and backwards in time, um, and it's not doing the usual character arc thing of a film yeah. and in the in the film itself you're going so two people kind of have character arcs um, but there's such a very definite structure to it where so many of the stories that happen are all quite random but they seem to be following a theme there's like five quite distinct sections and there's a definite midpoint where 
things change from being okay this is fun to being okay no things are just going to go wrong now um and just that really simple sort of little pyramid of a um of a structure really really works and um really holds it together and really makes you feel like okay you you totally know where this story is going all the way through um it's such a you know such a really interesting thing to see where you're kind of you know you will get drummed into you about everything needs to be because 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 and you can't just have an and then and with this film pretty much all of it is and then yeah almost the entire story is a series of and thens but it it nevertheless because of that simple really simple hinge in the middle of kind of like you know he starts out here he he gets to there and then okay from now on I'm just trying to get away from these people and they're going to come after me but you know and not in a kind of like, you know, they're hunting me, but just because they're my mates and I can't get them, I can't tell them to leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's such a kind of nice downbeat way of that, of making that work. But yeah, it's so such a simple way of giving the audience a journey, which then enables them to have all of these kind of, just this kind of like real kaleidoscope of everything happening around it, which, yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Mm. It's, it's, it's yeah, a masterful piece of screenwriting. Yeah. yeah I described really. it to somebody once years and years ago as the synth- it's like the synthesis of the two great narrative arcs of cinema one is that you it's a coming of age story where you learn yeah. to be yourself and the other one is uh the noir premise of not being able to escape your past and it's both of them it actually yeah. does both at once yeah which is just so fascinating to watch you know like to go back and study and analyze after the fact mm. because it suckers you in you don't really get either of those things hammered home but then there's that moment where Renton's sort of set up in his new life and everything's going well and he gets that letter and it's just like, oh, that's what this movie's about. Yeah. And now we have to endure that. And once again, like it, it's so important that the character is smart and self-aware to that extent because that's where it becomes a heist movie, where it becomes a plan and where it gets out. And subliminally also, we have McGregor from Shallow Grave just sort of ringing that bell in the back of your mind going, you know, he's done this before. He'll be okay. <laughs> he's going to get hurt, but it's going to be all right. Yeah. Uh, and it's just really... A tribute to to Boyle and Hodge and McGregor that you don't feel it. It doesn't feel like a retread at any point. It's no. just the band getting back together and doing the difficult second album and actually making it better. Mm. Yeah, yeah, much better. Yeah. So, had you seen Shallow Grave beforehand? I mean, I'm assuming it was floating yeah. around on DVD by yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd seen Shallow Grave. Yeah, um, yeah, and I almost actually was picking up on you and McGregor more from Lipstick on Your Collar. Yeah. Oh, the pirate. Um, back to yeah, Potter, Dennis yeah. Potter TV series. Um, where, yeah, he was really great in that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was... And again, in terms of how Potter used him, it's actually much more like how he's how he is in Trainspotting, I think, of taking an actually not very attractive character and making you care and mm. follow his journey and you don't mind that he's often not behaving that well right. because he just has this charm and this charisma and you totally sort of and you know all of that sort of surrealness sort of exploding around him and he's again in a way you know he's he's great in surreal things because he has that sort of he does have that weird sort of um uh, musical thing about you know like you could like he's not really he's not <clears throat> ever he has done a musical yet yeah with, um, down with love the Renee Zellweger yeah. film yeah. yeah from the director of Ant Man <laughs> which I never understood <laughs> um, but yeah it's weird he doesn't do more like that because he has like he's great in that in those oh, well and Milan Rouge of course oh yeah. right yeah of course yeah yeah which he disappeared into apparently because I didn't remember that either yeah, like, yeah. He's, he's so yeah and he's really good in that too yeah yeah he is he and is. I. Yes, a bit more. I, I, you know, it feels like with him, you, you want to give him some grit. 
yeah. You really want to give him some grit so that you know you're kind of um, yeah, you're you're you've, you're anchoring um, yeah. the things that you really enjoy about him, and you don't just go, hey, the things that you enjoy about him here, you know, it's like having too much ice cream. Yeah, with you and McGregor. Um, but I mean, it's the same with almost everything, isn't it? It's like it's you know, again, it's that thing of what's so smart about train spotting all the way through is that you always have that that tension between this is fun, this is awful, and it's it's like that's there in almost every aspect of the film. Mm. There's you know, it's pulling you both ways at once. Yeah, and their entire lives are excess. Yeah, so you actually are having the ice cream effect. You're getting to <laughs> they're, they're you know they're going to crash. They just don't. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's it's so fast paced as well. I mean, when you look at. So, uh, yeah, when you're editing a film and you're trying to work out the runtime, and obviously everybody wants to know the runtime, and it's really important what the runtime is. Yes. And uh, As a critic, I guarantee you that is the most important thing. <laughs> Show me 96, and I'm happy. Absolutely. 152. Uh, yeah. Really? Must but, we? <laughs> and then, but then you're sitting there, like, uh, when you're editing it, you don't put on any of the stuff at the start. Mm. You don't have any of the, you know, like, yeah. the, like you know, if you <laughs> just want to see in a little bit of uh, filth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's about six or seven different companies with their logos coming up before right. anything happens. You know, it's like true family guy. Yeah, logo. we were just, yeah, we were just asking asking ourselves, like, how does, what, what is the start of filth? Like, how does that actually begin? And we just, like, sort of found it online, you know, online on Netflix. Yeah. And we're Seems just, like, like a, a lot of Irving Welsh the way that his stuff works is that yeah he jumps forwards first and then okay now we're going to actually yeah. go back in time so you do that in train spotting that you know the bit that's in, meant to be in the middle that he's now moved to the front um you know then running away and that does happen in the middle of the yeah. film yeah, yeah and uh so filth he's got um this weird sort of dream sequence that will only yeah, make sense much later on yeah um uh, wedding bells which is a, a channel 4 tv thing um, which starts um, quite nicely with this thing with uh, four women all dressed in wedding dresses killing their respective uh, um, you know husbands to be okay. um, kicking them in the docks yeah uh, and uh, uh, yeah and and that plays out in a really nice way and it's a really nice way of setting up this stuff will come yeah um, it's a filth I don't remember how many but I remember a lot a lot of a, logos. A lot of logos yeah. at the front. Yeah. There's oh, my one, goodness. There's one that's worse, uh, and it it played at the film festival at, T- at TIFF last year because I saw it with an audience, and it just kept going. And after a while, the audience started to laugh, too. They would just... they <laughs> would see Turbo Kid? Turbo Kid has... Turbo Kid has a few... Turbo Kid's got loads. No, that played, that was, that played yeah. after dark, I think. No, the, the... the What you were just saying, like, as a critic, kind of, like, 96 minutes, I'm happy. It's like, yeah. with, with the opening card logos that effect is like magnified so it's like when they're like a 10 second thing you're like okay that was fine but then you get the one where it's like da-da yes. oh, like, come over. on I've got it I've got yeah. it you put your money in move on yeah, yeah. and you don't, obviously you don't have the credits either at the end of the film sure and so when you're editing it you're kind of like well this is this is perfectly fine it's like 92 minutes and then you like put the things on the front and the back yeah. and you're like oh it's 98 <laughs> how did that happen you know like we've stressed so much over seconds over trying to get this thing like as tight as possible and now we've just added a lot yeah um that wasn't there yeah it's such a uh, yeah but yeah and then you're watching train spotting and um you realize that if you uh forget about the credits it's yeah. 86 minutes yeah um, to, Which the, to the end, eighty-six insane, and a half. Yeah. You don't, you it's never, a free train. That's just yeah. doesn't stop moving. And you never think of it. Like in my head, transporting is a long film. Yeah, I, I'm always surprised when I put it in or when I hold up the disc and realize I should like ninety-six. I think I'll leave. That's yeah. nothing. Yeah, yeah, and it's this because they're so 
I think it's exactly 90 all in. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's so much that happens. Yeah. It? And that, I, I suppose that's, the, you know, because it does keep bouncing from, you know, another yeah. thing to another thing and really builds up in a kind of, um, like the whole bit when, um, so he's, he's come off drugs for the first time and they're all trying to be normal human beings and have, like, a relationship with the opposite sex and they all fuck up in their own different ways mm-hmm. in doing that. And it bounces from one to the other in kind of like, you know, in a different hands. You'd be like, well, that's Paul Thomas Anderson doing Magnolia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but obviously every single one of them is, is line, you know, teeing up a punchline. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, and they're all perfectly executed. They're all really funny. Yeah. And again, I mean, that's the other, in terms of telling a story in that space and in that kind of, with that kind of velocity, what's interesting is that because it, because it isn't built on a series of because... Right. And therefore, you know, like, because it doesn't actually have this kind of, like, massive kind of plot structure to it, it has loads of time to hang around introducing characters. Yeah. So even though it is a breakneck thing that, that takes only, that takes, you know, 86 minutes, you really care because you've really been introduced, you, you know, like, even though it's like, you know, like they pop up and it's almost like a series of jokes with each of them, but perhaps in a way because of that, because each one of those kind of friends is you have the moment where it's like, I now get to laugh at you. I then care about you because yeah. that's how a joke works. Um, and then it's kind of like, it feels really deep because I feel like I know who these people are and then I could, like my imagination can fill in the blanks around it. Yeah, they're all really real people as well, aren't yeah. they? You know, it's kind of um, none of the... I suppose actually because you're kind of going because they're just there because they are who they are. Yeah. They're not there because they're ciphers to get you from the, you know, whatever yeah, there's stage no... to the next stage. There's no threshold guardians exactly, like, you yeah. know, opening doors for mm-hmm. you to the, the whatevers. Yeah, there's no there's no one there to help the hero on his journey. There's no um mm. uh what's the what's the, the There's no journey, there's escape. It's a flight. It's, like, yeah. it's the opposite of, of oh, a triumphant right. story, except that it is triumphant in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They do really well on that. You know, it's not that you're going, Oh phew, how did you get out of that? You're going, Yeah, you did it. Yeah. You did what? You screwed over all of your mates and ran away with some money which again is the queasy thing about you know it's, it's that really interesting I mean it, it, like the way the ending is played but actually the way like the you know the one thing that almost everyone knows about it is Chew's life mm-hmm. but that in itself is again there's this re- sort of inherent tension to it because it's there's nothing positive in that speech yeah. it's never there, it, either at the start or in the middle or at the end which is like it occurs three times throughout that script and in none of them is does he talk positively about any of the things in which he says he's choosing. Yeah, it's and never that, a triumph. No, it's never. And at the end, he's going, you know, I feel pretty bad about this, but I think we can all agree I sort of had to do it. And now I've got the money. I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm going to have my TV. I'm going to be good at golf. I'm going to be... And it's 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 a threat. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's... it's And it's also, it's you know, it is that sort of... I mean, he, he, is he staring at the camera? He's not quite staring at the camera. Yeah, he's walking right Yeah, but it's that thing of like it's one of those few. It's almost like he turns into a happy face, you know, like uh, yeah, I remember Acid House happy face. Yeah, mm. I think that was actually I remember sort of quite a kind of um, I think it was almost like a deliberate thing of mm. turning him into an Acid House face at the end. But yeah, but it's one of the few things in um, it's one of the few films I can think of where it ends with a character looking straight to camera, and it works because I feel like yeah, you are. That you are making a statement that is involving me, yeah, and it is it is a threat to me, and it is implicit of me, and it is it is questioning the way in which I've lived my life, and that like there is that thing of like, well, I'm coming, you know, I'm coming for the comfort that you live in, 
Mm. And there's that sort of thing. Kind of like, yeah, and the comfort that we live in is based upon the, you know, we're all part of this society. You know, it's like there is that kind of, it's yeah. it's a complicated thing that happens at the end mm. in a really happy bounce. And it's like, yay, oh, yeah, oh, oh I don't, I see it, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be your estate agent. Yeah, so he is going to be your estate agent. Something utterly conventional and utterly terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not metastasis. It's the other thing. It's the thing where the cell enters the system, where, where yeah. there's <clears throat> like where the pollution comes in, where the where the lead creeps into the water pipe or something. Um, I I I was really surprised. I was kind of making little notes thing, and uh, and and I made a connection that I'd never made before. But this is basically the movie that makes American Psycho possible. Yeah, like what Mary Heron did with that book is to be sort of Kubrickian and over the top in a way that I think Boyle sort of paved the way for unconsciously mm. by invoking all the Clockwork Orange comparisons because they're really they're not similar films in any visual or, or stylistic way except that they are uh, Clockwork, Clockwork and Trainspotting which is oh, well, yeah. sort of leapfrogging and then out of that yeah comes... I suppose Trainspotting you're going so if you're thinking of it as uh, it's a character who um, is disobeying the normal laws of society Mm. And so society wants him to become part of society and he has to give up the thing that whatever it was that it was driving him. And so you've kind of got that similar idea between the two. Yeah. Um, but in Clockwork, it's forced, it's taken away. It's forcibly taken away from yeah. him yeah. against his will and including Beethoven, which is why it's tragic. And in Trainspotting, it's cowardice. Like he flees and goes straight. Yeah. And yeah. is drawn back in. It's, that's what I mean. Like you can remember an image from Train Spotting and overlay the Droog costumes, and it works perfectly. But there's nothing in the films themselves that connects it. It's just fascinating. They are the same story, except that they're not. Uh, this yeah, weird it, mirror image. They, yeah, it, but it is a weird mirror, mirror image. There is. I mean, I'm. I mean, Boyle said he was thinking about it. It was. Yeah. It, it was part of it. But it's just this really bizarre thing where you can look at it and it. Kind of isn't, and it kind of is. It, yeah. it fights the com- it fights the comparison mm. by being so specific to itself. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I mean, the, the language is also. I mean, it's some slightly more so in the book, where the language is even more. Ex- I mean, in both cases, mm. like the language organized, yeah, yeah. But it's like it's interesting that in both cases, it's actually the initial spark. Quite po- like for both is verbal, mm. and you go, you know, like the 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 draw in writing Clockwork Orange was very much first and foremost was inventing this language yeah. and what that then did to the way to the way you think as a reader as you read it and you're kind of like you're you're pulling yourself through this entirely alien text and, and yeah and it infects you as you read it which yeah. is what's so fascinating about both books too yeah and you know and i suppose the kind of the interesting so like there's the similarity because because for a lot of readers reading train spotting it's a similar effect and you're kind of like okay i i'm having to piece this together and put okay now i'm able to to read this properly but of course the like the mirror image thing comes in is of course in clockwork orange burgess has invented this language and in train spotting that's irving going that this is this is how me and my mates speak yeah, and i want to and I, it. yeah and i want to reflect my reality and it's kind of you know and that's that thing i mean it is you know it's you know going right back to um uh, Rappy Burns, frankly, kind of like being, no, no, this is how we speak. This is, we're proud of, you know, this is how we're going to communicate. And you guys mm-hmm. have to fucking get with the system and, you know, appreciate that, yeah. which is why it is so awful that you then do a version of it with softer yeah. accents because yeah. it's like that's going against everything that, you know, it sort of is about. But so in a way, that mirror image is 
like it's there between the two th- like it is a mirror because mm-hmm. you're going in both cases there's this very kind of verbal this very thing about language and the way that, that you know intrinsically affects the way you think yep. but in one case it's it's a massive kind of like intellectual exercise and in the other it's a really kind of passionate political exercise frankly mm. um, yeah and then you move to American Psycho and uh, yeah it's really interesting to see that because there is so many things that are similar yeah, yeah it's and, ritualized and, in the same way yeah. yeah yeah and that fantastical thing as well you know that's what that, something I always really loved about American Psycho the film is that you're kind of going yeah okay we it's a self-aware movie and it's willing to do ridiculous shit um and yeah really go 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 out there and it's kind of like yeah fine that that stuff can happen and you're never quite saying well it's because x y or z yeah um yeah there's something really nice about that and it's more about a uh a feeling and emotion again like you know it's like not quite going like it's a uh, a, a drastically different visual metaphor because you're going well you know no it's just a car that's exploded it's what always happens in movies but it kind of doesn't make any sense to have happened in this movie right. why has that happened and you're like well because emotionally that's exactly where he's at um, yeah it's really nicely done I think she's a lot more judgmental of uh, of, of Patrick Bateman in well, I think, yeah I think she wants us to be yeah, certainly yeah. absolutely she's like out of the three of them you're kind of going she's the yeah. one who's got the firmest moral hold yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. and once again people didn't get it and they just yeah. missed it completely because of what they see rather than what they feel and and train spotting is so much about the feeling of what's happening and the experience of enjoying this awfulness with people mm. with like being it played like a concert press screening where there were only 40 of us but it was like watching the Velvet Underground or the Sex Pistols so yeah. like, <laughs> watching the world change right in front of me this is never going to happen again mm-hmm. and then that gives us you know Lock Stock and all the other films that tried so hard to be that sort of lad movie I think yeah. is what they called them right but that's not what this is Trainspotting is is not about endorsing the culture or celebrating it or turning it into a gap commercial it's about people who learn to stop celebrating it or at least one person yeah and everybody forgets like the third act it just drops away that the reason people like this is because of what I, I always i wonder the people who commissioned the next ones the knockoffs did they just watch the trailer and not the film and just like that's what we want and that's why all these subsequent films don't have the moral center that's so desperately needed uh i suppose a lot of the time you're going it's just because you're enjoying a filmic trick and you're just going okay cool how did you do that well I'll do something similar to that mm. and uh, you know like so the freeze frames are coming from Scorsese isn't it um, yeah. Yeah. with Goodfellas and uh, yeah that continues on into Lockstock and god knows yeah. what else you get those weird camera tricks with the gap commercial effect of you know turning and revolving the yeah. the axis and I, I saw that and thought why I, I mean I don't like Lockstock and Two Smoking Girls I was one of the ones one of the few people who just didn't go for it at all mm. within five minutes just like oh you saw train spotting i know what this is and just turned off to it and snatch is a little better because it's less stylistic and more involved and it's kind of more dialogue heavy but that's but interesting I we're remember. kind of the opposite way around really? but i think some of that again depends upon the way that you come to it so yeah. we the thing we knew about Lockstock beforehand was that Vinnie uh, Jones was in it. Vinnie Jones okay. is in it, and so Sting. And you're like, yeah. well, um, yeah. and and the uh, Trudy Styler, who's Sting's wife, has funded it. Yeah, and you're like, well, this I mean, is going to be, like, you know, probably more so now, and particularly 
before you see Lockstock, but kind of you go at that point, you go into a film, you go, yeah, it's Trudy Styler, it's Sting, it's Vinnie Jones, it's like this is going to be the worst thing in the world I ever. See, yeah. How yeah. can something accommodate all of these things? Yeah. Well, you, it's just you're thinking it's going to be a horrible vanity vehicle where they've cast a, per, you know, like they, they're going, oh, we need to get somebody who's got like a name to him. Vinnie Jones. Vinnie Jones. Sting. He must be good yes. at acting. You yeah. Know? yeah. Why? Because he grabbed Gaza by the balls. I mean, like. It's a really bizarre yeah. choice, and yeah, I mean, you know, in that instance, it's well, also, give it to them. That works. Yeah, yeah. he's great. I mean, you know, he he isn't great in anything else, but he's great in that film. Yeah. Absolutely great in that film. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think we had a bit of a whale of a time. I don't think I've actually seen it since. Uh, it was like at Edinburgh I Film think, Festival. So yeah, so yeah, we saw we saw it at Edinburgh and, and like left that like went in just like oh well you know what else are we gonna do and left on a high. Okay. And I think I've, I think kind of on the back of that. Just through like going back and telling people you've got to watch this. I think I saw it three or four times yeah. back then. Right. But yeah, no, I haven't watched it for a very long time. Um, <laughs> be interesting to see if it holds up or if you're kind of like, oh, actually. I mean, I think the. I kind of want to see it again now too, yeah. just to feel fun. Maybe I got it wrong. I don't know. I, d- I don't. Yeah. Th- I mean, I think. I, it's yeah. certainly possible. I think the interesting thing about it is that what it. My memory of it is that what it does do is the friends and the gang yeah. and like you really like those characters um, and you kind of it's I remember a lot of fun and the other thing that, that sticks out to me interestingly is the little speech that who is it I think it's um, duh, 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 duh. Fleming? Yeah, no, Fletcher? Fletcher no uh, who is it I can't remember the speech about tea the speech about how it's drinking tea that made Britain great, and it's right. like they're about, they're all about to get ready to do the job, and one of them's like, I think it is Dexter Fletcher, mm-hmm. is like, or is like, no, 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 we've got to stop and have a cup of tea because that's what, we're, and it's like, it's, and it's, it's interesting because you kind of go, yeah, this is this is train spotting, but rather than being written by Irving Welsh, it's being written by a posh middle class guy who doesn't really know the world yeah, yeah. Uh, but does like tea and does <laughs> and, you know and it's like it's so I think on a kind of surface level it's very appealing but I you know yeah I can't imagine that there's much in it on a yeah on a on, on an intense rewatch yeah I'm curious now yeah, yeah we always now. we we really enjoyed that you know the the coming together of all of those different plot points and the you know you did it to Zorba the Greek and you know at that point it was like, oh yeah this is really kind of fun and uh, I you've seen it so many times that Zorba Since, yeah. that gets used where you're kind of like yeah you can't you can't you know it's not that I'm going you know I, there probably has been many uses of it before that point as well yeah um, but it's really hard for it to feel anything other than hackneyed yeah but then at the same time structurally it's such a really useful song like yeah. for a while yeah. with Nina, yeah, we yeah. actually used we tried to use Orba as a a, a bit after. Um, so Holly's moving in. Uh, yeah, well, we didn't try and use it. We like we couldn't think what we didn't want to use it. No, it was just all. a temperature. But then, sort of but yeah, but then it, it and it just it just worked. It's such a great piece of music to edit anything to, and it just really worked. And it was like, oh god. <laughs> and, and, and so much of that is actually because you're going well. It's the rhythm, and you're like, there aren't many songs which yeah. start slow and just get faster and faster and faster. And you're like, at to watch that in a film is fun to, because you're kind of like you know just everything starts chasing and yeah, uh, it's just interesting to think what what key thing what time signature that was all the Greeks actually in God I have no idea I don't know because it's two yeah it's <laughs> like you know, to it's, the power of six yeah it's it's, uh, it's I mean it certainly isn't it, it could be you know about to say something really dumb but I don't think it is an in, it's definitely not a flat 4-4 four, four, you know it's like that, yeah, that yeah. you yeah, know yeah. and again so and it's very hard 
you know, it's that interesting thing about coming to music is that so often that does kind of pull you into a four-four beat, which can actually be something that you have to really struggle against in order to make an edit interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, people were talking about, oh, well, I cut on the offbeat or I cut on the, you know, like, yeah, it's because you use a four-four music. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. if you used a waltz, you'd be having a whale of a time. Um, yeah, well, you're inherently making it safe for yourself yeah. by using something that the audience can sort of pulse with. Yeah. Which yeah. I mean, again, why Lust for Life is such an amazing opening because yeah. you're just not given any consideration. I don't care if you've finished your popcorn. We're going. Like the film yeah. just takes off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, we actually yeah. recreated that oh, sequence with Barry, with, who gave us the chair that you yeah. sat. On. Yeah, with Barry, you gave us the you gave us the chair that you sat on. He, um, we were doing a show called Where's Barry uh, in Edinburgh, um, and the uh, conceit of the show was that uh, he'd woken up. Um, late for his show, and he was handcuffed to his bed. And um, so yes, he's a, he, he like had a bunch of characters that he played throughout the show, and the idea was that the characters would all be people who were coming in to fill in for Barry because Barry hadn't turned up, okay. and then would occasionally cut to video of Barry trying to make his way to the venue. And part of it being Edinburgh was like, well, we're going to have to do a train spotting thing. Yeah. Um, and he didn't realise that. Yeah, he wakes up, he's he's handcuffed to the bed, and somebody's drawn a dick on his forehead. Um, and so then we we made him run down the streets of uh, down Prince's Street and down those exact steps yeah. and fall over a car, uh, but with a dick on his head. Um, he had to do quite a few takes because it was all done in. We'd done it so that we mounted the camera to him just in front, and okay. he just ran off with it. Yeah. And so uh, he had to get it right, or else we'd just have to do the take again. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, there was quite a lot of him running around with a dick on his head in yeah. Edinburgh for, <laughs> yeah. for a while. But. Which is also quite cruel, quite enjoyably cruel watching the footage back because, like, you know, like you'd be on like fourth take and he'd be like, okay. <laughs> set off and then he'd do something wrong and the beauty of it is it's not like us going no cut he'd know right. and he'd go no no I could, I could, oh it's dark okay so, sorry guys okay let's do that again do that again it's just like yeah, it's just you know yeah cruel but enjoyable <laughs> oh, it's wonderful yeah but yeah it's a great it's a great start and such a great track um, and so propulsive and really sets up the you know the entire mood of the film doesn't it yeah um yeah, I'm trying to think of like in terms of like score wise because there's so you know like, there is no score. It's just yeah, it's yeah, just it's all music. It's all, it's all music. Yeah, and there's so much of it. Yeah, um, but it, I mean, it goes. I think it goes from Lust, Lust for Life to Carmen, doesn't it? Carmen. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like your first uh, sort of clockwork orangey. Oh yeah. See, look, we can use classical music as well. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there it is again. It's all these weird little images. All yeah. these Twinnings. Yeah, and using the wide angle lenses as well, you know, and uh, that way of making. At what are actually really quite small spaces, really big, and um, yeah, the way that you can really dramatically change um, your aspect on a character within the same frame just by because obviously you know they come close to the lens and they become huge and bulbous yeah. and you know they just lean back and suddenly they're tiny. Yeah, um, and the, and the and that's where too when with just which lens you shoot you and Bremner with. Yeah. turns him into a grotesquerie so easily because his his features are just so amazingly exaggerated. Oh, he performs that so amazingly yeah. well as well, though. Like, you know, yeah. you look at the body shapes that he... He's pulling, yeah. No, he's yeah, really, he's contorting he, himself. Yeah, yeah, completely contorting yeah. himself. And yet you're kind of, you know, you're watching him, you're not going like, oh, why is he doing that? You're going, yeah, I've got friends who do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's instantly relatable. I mean, yeah. I, just, I was realizing, I'm just in my head, I'm like, do we, did I miss something? And I realized we haven't spoken the names of any of the other actors other than McGregor. And it's just because they are, like, it, 
Robert Carlyle doesn't exist. That's Begbie on yeah, screen. Yeah, I have yeah. seen that guy. Uh, and, and Bremner and Johnny Lee Miller, we might have mentioned him. And, um, oh, I'm forgetting somebody else. Somebody obviously... Uh, oh, Kevin McKidd, right. Yeah. Who, and, and I found this out in researching. Didn't, he, was, he was on vacation when they were... He was on holiday when they were shooting the advertising. So... He doesn't appear oh, in anything. That why he's yeah. Like, I've, I've always and thought he drops that they, right out. I've always thought that they just shoved it in because they kind of like thinking, well, how are we going to sell this movie with four guys? Let's 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 put Diane on the poster. Yeah, because, yeah, it's Kevin McDonald. Yeah, like, that'll work. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it really did because I got. Yeah. I remember really clearly. I remember um, the panels, right? The yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an amazing. I mean, it's masterpiece. I mean, in terms of you know, like as a separate thing from the film, just in terms of a campaign, you know, a marketing oh, yeah. thing, a poster, a series of images. It's flawless yeah, yeah. but Just, I remember when I remember girls at school absolutely relating wanting to go and see the film because she was on the poster like yeah. genuinely like wow. so yeah. it's it's really it's a brilliant piece yeah it's, inclusion I remember yes. the sixth form ball where yeah. your boxer being dressed in exactly that dress <laughs> Yeah, let's leave that just hanging in the air. I think we should just leave that, that thought hanging in the air and what yeah. that means. Everyone but, uh, remembers what they remember. They do. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but yeah, but, I mean, it's 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 sad, tragic in a way if it was just because he was on holiday. Mm-hmm. Probably more tragic if he was shafted by uh, Julia and the rest of the PR team yeah. putting that together. Because it, it, like it, when you, it's fascinating again when you like when you think about the film. Probably because of that, you go, oh yeah, Kelly McDonald, Ewan McGregor. Um, Robert Carlyle, Kelly MacDonald, and like those are the you know like that stands out. When you actually look at who, you know who are yeah. the important characters, Kevin McKidd is playing Tommy. You're going, yeah, he's the heart of the film because yeah. you're going. So he's the you know like the angelic good one who's going to be the one who gets corrupted and killed. Yeah, yeah. and maybe that's it too. He doesn't make it to the end, so we yeah. just don't quite retain him. It's weird because it is. Something. weird I mean, but also, I mean, again, in terms of like narrative service. Yeah, because it's it's also it's interesting because in terms of like in terms of what he gives you as an audience and what he gives you, in a way as a director when you're sort of you know having the discussions of kind of like have you just made a film that glorifies heroin, mm-hmm. like it's a very very useful character arc and storyline because you're like no I haven't here's this guy who's really lovable and you know fantastic you know like totally honest is how he's introduced it's like he cannot tell a lie yeah and by the end he's dying from you know HIV and um, because because of yeah you know brain tumour because of cat shit you know it's like it's totally grim Um, but you're quite right in terms of like you know like it's you know we have that story we have the funeral then they go and you know open a can of beer and it's like we've just got all these drugs we're going to do this job and it's you know you know Renton says it's kind of like you know we've just been to his funeral and they're like yeah and and then they move on from it and it's Mm -hmm. like in terms of the film never actually points a finger at Renton and goes, you are fairly totally responsible for like all the way, all the beats that lead Tommy there. Renton oh, is... Oh, yeah, yeah. Unquestionably, it's yeah. him. Like, he introduces him to heroin. Yeah. He um, begs, like, Tommy begs him for it, which is so bizarre. Yeah. It's the, I mean, not only that, I mean, you know, he causes the breakup. So, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's he the one who the steals tape, the yeah. tape. Oh, that's right. And, uh, yeah, and that's why Tommy breaks up with his girlfriend. Um... Well, well, his girlfriend breaks up with Tommy. Yeah, but in terms of how the film ends, the film ends with him going, "I shafted my mates." I, you know, I kind of had to. You know, he is referring to the four, the three guys he's just left behind. He's not at no point does he go, "Yeah, I did this. I am responsible mm. for this." That never follows him, and it's like it's interesting in terms of. I mean, again, in terms of um, where the film leaves you and how the film leaves you. You know, it's 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 Tommy's storyline doesn't 
haunt the character and it doesn't yeah. haunt you don't come away from the film going god it's about this guy who portrays his friend and his friend dies of toxic shock in a squat it's yeah you know, yeah I mean if anything the baby is the wake up call for Renton yeah. like, that's when he quits that's when he leaves but yeah Tommy's just a casualty of something that I mean maybe that's an effect of the narrator distancing himself from his responsibility you know, like that I was high it doesn't Absolutely. count yeah. but it it's really odd how it just doesn't hang you know, in any way over the Yeah, end. I wonder what would happen if you did actually give him the sense of guilt. Um, just in terms of, you know, so the reaction to the film, where you're going, oh, this, you know, it's a film where you can say, yeah, it glorifies heroin taking. And you're like, well, if he actually felt guilty about the guy that has ended up dead, part, primarily because of the things that he's done... Um, yeah, would that actually change, you know, your attitude towards the film as a whole, as what the film's trying to say? Because you're going, you know, I think it starts it, being about it. And interestingly, in terms of that last speech and him walking away, and what that kind of leaves you with, that turns the film for me into a kind of, you know, as I said before, this sort of like political thing about society and about how this man fits into society and how his actions and behaviour fits into. Yeah, yeah what the rest of us are doing. Whereas, if the film ended with him, you know, having a responsibility for Tommy, then it does become a film about heroin. Yeah. And that's it. And it yeah. becomes a much... It, beca- it encloses itself and it becomes just about that. And it becomes actually a much more comfortable film because I can sit back and I can watch and be like, yeah, that's why I don't do heroin. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, <laughs> you're given an out. You're yeah. allowed, you're allowed to, to absolve... Not absolve yourself, but you're allowed to never invest yourself Exactly. Like yeah. you can just leave it all behind. Yeah. Whereas instead, you know, I'm sat there watching it on my big screen TV. So I'm no good at golf. But, you know, it's like you know, it's like you know, I'm you know, sat there in my in my life that I have chosen. Yeah. And the film does manage to rattle you still. It does kind of reach out and go, well, what are you doing? You know. Mm. Yeah. How do you connect? Yeah. Okay. Before we go, because that would would be a perfect out, except that there's another question you want. <laughs> You've already kind of addressed it. That's, isn't that perfect for discussing your film? Like yes. it, would, it would have the perfect structure, but no, actually, we want to go over here with it now. <laughs> Let me go. Um, well, the, uh, the final question on the show is always the same, which is what of, of this film have you absorbed into your own work or cannibalized or stolen outright? Is there anything that influences you? you sort of ref- you've referenced it, but have you taken its... I mean, some of the things in Nina Forever feel weirdly... Renton and Diane in the, in the just the naturalism of the relationship in the midst of all the strangeness that kind of rang a bell with me yeah I mean it's funny because again when we I were, feed you the answer <laughs> <laughs> when, when we were discussing what we were going to talk about obviously we were thinking kind of like you know what are the kind of immediate things that we knew we were referencing when we were making Nina we were sort of you know trying to decide you know whether it was one of those films that we should talk about and then this came up sort of out of the blue really um, but it's fascinating because it it's something that we weren't we never mentioned never kind of directly right. talked about when you know um, until obviously when we were talking about posters because you can't talk about what do we want for the posters like can we can we do you and McGregor can we have all the ca-? no no we can't that doesn't work but you know like obviously it, it has to come up then because it's one of the best ever um, but when you kind of then sort of start kicking it around particularly that sort of going back to what we were saying at the start of that sort of sense of it can be seen as this sort of naturalistic thing, but it's actually incredibly surreal and really ties into this stream of stuff. And I think a lot of people kind of want to put Nina in a sort of a horror box, which is great because 
those people love it. But for us, it was always more surreal was, and fantastical. Yeah, yeah, and we were always thinking magic realism um, as our, you know, this is our genre. I know yeah. it's not a cinematic genre necessarily, but yeah, we're definitely in the magic real thing. And we're coming from that tradition of Dennis Potter, especially. Yeah, one, one day iTunes will have magic realism and it will be <laughs> us and Dennis Potter and Danny Boyle, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then you're going, yeah, and Danny Boyle is, is definitely in that same that same spot. Train spotting really is. There's so many fantastical elements in there. And also the uh, the cynicism, yeah, mm. which um, doesn't come across as, you know, it's a, like a lovable cynicism. Um, you know, it's not that you're going like, oh, you're such a cynic, and I don't really like you because you're being quite. But, so. Yeah, and again, it's the, but again, it's that tension, isn't it? Because it's it's cynicism and naivety. Like there's an incredible yeah. innocence to all of the characters, <clears throat> and I mean, like I mean, Diane actually is a really interesting one because, like, she is exactly that, and she is simultaneously innocent and when she is saying to him like you know if you don't sleep with me again I'll tell everyone that you've slept with me yeah I mean that's that's that is simultaneously a very very cynical thing to do and a completely innocent thing to do yeah it's naive but yeah predatory yeah she's going to she's going to be his partner in the estate agency (laughs) (laughs) she'll be the one who murders the tenants to get the new ones in it's like she is i mean she's also the smartest character in the film because she is the clearest of everyone she's direct she threatens people but she doesn't lie she just doesn't tell the truth Mm. yeah and that's interesting yeah and and renton is repulsed by it which is something fascinating when he finds out just how honest she is he doesn't want anything more to do with her yeah but with Nina, uh, you have a character who is dead and telling the truth yeah. all the time. And is like the, the magic realist thing is, is great because it gives her the excuse to know things that we don't know and understand things that we can't understand. And the characters she talks to are sort of trapped. Like, that's the beauty of it. They're literally trapped in the room with the, with the ghost of your ex. But also, she's not mad. I mean, every time I've tried to explain the film to people... They say, oh, so it's a horror movie. It's about vengeance. Like, well, no, she's just really cranky. <laughs> she doesn't want to be there. And, yeah, and I, I think that's the that's the real thing that a lot of people struggle with, and then eventually kind of go, oh, I see. And it's yeah. that moment when she's like, I don't, I don't want, and you know, I, I'm not here to uh, claim my vengeance or to fight yeah. to fight fight you for my. Yeah, that's love. the thing. We don't like story wise. We're not attracted at all to films of that are about revenge. Yeah, you know, like the idea of making a thing which is oh, I want to fuck you up because you fucked me up. You're like it's quite boring, actually. You know, and the thing that um, well, it doesn't happen. I mean, it, it's yeah. not an emotion. Admittedly, people coming back from yeah. <laughs> but I believe Nina more than I believe revenge. I believe her yeah. her motivation because it's something that we feel or don't feel. It's the, the absence of involvement. Yeah. It's more interesting than, than the diluted, bunny-boiling caricature of somebody who just wants revenge. Nobody yeah. just wants revenge. People want, you know, pie. They, they get distracted. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you kind of think of, like, The Revenant, where you're kind of going, basically, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, mainly it's about him enjoying bite and liver and, and snowflakes. And, uh, <laughs> and, those, and then they eventually get to this point where they're like, oh, shit, yeah, it needs to... Oh, he definitely needs revenge, actually, doesn't he? Because otherwise, why, what have we been doing? Yeah, and that was always the stuff that confused me about the film, because it's like the stuff when he is in awe of 
this world that he is clinging desperately to stay in mm-hmm. and the stuff when he's eating bison liver and being like this is the best mi- like the fish bit I mean when he eats that yeah. fish that you're just like yeah it's so it's so visceral and so, you're so kind of like yeah you're not thinking about revenge you're not thinking about like all of that stuff is there but what you're thinking about is how great this fish tastes yeah. and that's what you're right that's yeah, what that, you that sort of Terence Malick thing that, that yeah. Inaritu keeps chasing and not getting to because he is a robot who has no emotion, but but uh, <laughs> I've got an episode coming up on the Revenant, folks, and it's cool. going to be awkward. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we, we've yeah. never been particularly attracted to, to revenge stories, and and yeah, there's so much more that's interesting, and so Nina's always been really interesting as a character to us, as uh, someone who's got um, other thoughts and emotions. Yeah, um, but I mean, going back to Train Spotting, revenge is interesting in that because they're all characters who you can buy being driven by revenge but there's no revenge in like it yeah it, like you know Renton like is scared you know like there's that sense of kind of like oh if you screw over Begbie there will be a revenge you know there's a sort of a, an intrinsic dot 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 about being involved with Begbie but yeah. that's a plot for another film that you know isn't the one they're making now you know it's like that's not anything that anyone's actually interested in yeah, um, yeah. I mean Begbie more he's more driven by obligation than anything else I think. <laughs> like he expects things from people yeah. and when they disappoint him it becomes revenge yeah but I don't yeah I don't know that he feels it that way like he's just owed stuff yeah everything mm. constantly absolutely yeah. Owed to him. yeah that's very true yeah yeah um, so is there anything else that you guys have lifted and so definitely something, something that I mean, you know, Danny Boyle does amazingly in all his films, um, but especially in Transporting is the is the soundtrack. Um, yeah, we knew that we wanted to be uh, doing something similar in terms of soundtrack, not not wall to wall music, but just that sense of picking the right tracks and having stuff that really fits and is really good music. And, yeah, and like, we also and the also- first budget that we had for the <laughs> film. So it's a really small film and, uh, you know, it's all usually done on sort of percentages and I think we had like 500 quid in the budget for music mm-hmm. in its entirety, uh, including uh, the score. Yeah. Um, it might have been a grand. I think it might have been a grand. Right, yeah. it, might, it, it was between it 500 fluctu- and I think grand. it fluctuated. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and that was kind of like, well, we're never going to be able to afford to, you know, buy any music. any music. And we know that music's really important because, you know, they're young characters, they're listening to music and... Um, just as importantly, yeah, there's something about the film. You add such a uh, an extra level because you're kind of thinking, you know, if you think about the amount of time that it takes you, the amount of people to create the production quality. You know, you're always talking about money on the screen, and uh, when you kind of think of the amount of time that people have taken, the you know this, the 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 moment of genius that it took them to record this music in just the right way that has you know stood the test of time. It's really worth the money. Yeah, I mean, like you know, training like you know, Atomic is just like there. I can think of no song that better encapsulates that moment of lust, that moment of seeing someone and knowing this is happening. Yeah, this is going to blow my mind. It's going to blow your mind. This is just like and it, like to take the bottle that emotion and to be able to just put it into a scene. It's like you know, it's not that what's happening in that scene isn't also great. But you kind of go. That song gives you such a boost. Yeah. Like it just, you just instantly. Everyone is more attractive in that sequence because Debbie Harry is singing. To, yeah. You know, yeah, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then you, if you buy the soundtrack, uh, it's not the Debbie Harry version. It's um, Sleeper. Sleeper. Yeah. There's a cover by Sleeper, yeah. which I don't know whether that's I them. I assume going. they couldn't afford. 
either they had yeah either they couldn't afford Blondie or or they've tried to you know cut more into the Brit pop fashion possibly, yeah. of the time yeah, that would make sense too um, but you're kind of like well you want the Blondie version because that's the one that really you know kicks you off in a, in such a good way in the film yeah um, yeah so yeah so music's really important to us in that in that same sort of way um, yeah but in the same way I mean you know like there's the like the other there's other elements that as a filmmaker you can use that other people have poured their thoughts in you know it's like there's that brilliant bit in that sequence when he's in the club and behind him there's that um, mural painting of um, De Niro from Taxi Driver and I don't know if that was a painting that was done specifically by the art department for this film or whether that's a piece of art that they'd kind of brought in but either way it's drawn from Taxi Driver you know and it's like in that frame kind of like if the wall behind him was blank you get so much less from that moment Whereas kind of like you have Renton there, and then you instantly connect him to this iconic figure from cinema, and this iconic, mo- you know, it's like it's, it's yeah, it's it's incredible what you you know what you bring into something. So again, yeah, with but the music is a really kind of clear one of like, well, mm. yeah, we want as much great music as we possibly can, and music that kind of really just reaches out and connect. And it's it doesn't and the, the, the the key thing for us actually in terms of you kind of um, you find that actually a lot of the time with music you really need the lyrics to fit. Yeah, and when they don't, you know, like I hate, I hate, so I hate films where, you know, it's like okay, so this is like the happy bit, and so we've got a bit of music, and well, that montage only lasted for twenty seconds, and we, well, we're just gonna do like a fade down. Yeah, just turn it away. Just turn it away. Mm. We don't really know what we're doing. We didn't. We we just kind of needed something there, yeah. and it was and whatever. The kids, the kids like Katy Perry. Let's put that in there. Yeah, yeah I it's mean, whatever's got batted your way, and yeah. you know, you kind of get a lot of suggestions for music. Um, and I suppose actually that's a really key point for Nina is that um, in terms of the film, it can, you know, it's like it's a film about grief um, and, uh, you know, it can be taken quite seriously. And the thing for us with the music, people would send us songs saying, hey, this would fit really well in the film. And you're like, yeah, it sort of encapsulates the feeling. It's a but beautiful, mournful song of, you know, someone alone with a piano singing yeah. how sad they are. And you're like, yeah, but... But there's no point in putting that in the film because everybody's already being mournful and sad. Yeah, and yeah. actually, the thing that we really want to have, and we knew really early on, was we really want um, drums and we yeah. want that propulsive, same, you know, the same sort of drive that you're yeah. getting from train spotting where you know it's not we're not sticking in lust for life but loads of the songs that we were starting out with there's so much so much drumming yeah and it really was about yeah adding that extra element of um and the and again that element of fun i mean again it's i think you know like in terms of how it, the music works in train spotting of kind of like you go here's something horrible happening on screen and i've put something bouncy and fun beneath it yeah, yeah. and the two things aren't cancelling each other out. They're creating this interesting tension. And that was definitely something. And again, with the lyrics, I mean, like... Yeah, so lyrically in Trainspotting, you're going, you know, you've got Lust for Life. But not only... I mean, and like, then, you know, like, Temptation. I mean, yeah, like... I mean, some, some of it is... But, I mean, Lust for Life, it's also interesting, like, when you like when you watch it again with this in mind, like, there's a bit in the start when they're playing Lust for Life when they're actually injecting and the music actually just... just, just comes up yeah. just ever so slightly for Iggy Pop to shout, of course I've had it in the ear before, which isn't... Isn't actually a, a reference to taking drugs, yeah. but, but it just might as well be exactly. at this moment. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, like the connection, and you just kind of like it's all those little details where you can see that they're not just putting on a music that, like, yeah, perfect day. Yeah, it's yeah. essential commentary. You know? Yeah, and yeah. so yeah, there's one particular bit in Nina where um, uh, so it's the first time after Nina's arrived, and um, Rob's cleaning up the flat the next day, and we were trying to find the right music for it, 
and uh, we started out with a Fred Astaire track that we couldn't afford and then we were like okay well we know that Scar can be cheap and you know like we've had friends who've been able to <laughs> afford Scar music and I love Scar music um, and so it was like oh well there's this one which works really well by a band called the Melodians and uh, so we were pretty confident that we'd be able to get that one and the quote for that was like double the amount of money that we had for all of the music in the film yeah. so can't have that one and uh, then searching through for ages and trying to find because we knew it wanted to be a track from the past that had like this sort of slightly um, classic thing going on to it that yeah, it didn't want to be like a modern day thing no it wanted to feel really out of place which yeah. I think was again like that whole sequence the joy of it is like the like mixing that reality right. of I have to clean up my flat with the impossibility of I have to clean up my flat because my dead girlfriend has magically appeared and bled everywhere. Yeah. And so then having this kind of track that was out of time, I mean, as in from a different era mm-hmm. rather than played badly, um, that, that was, yeah, it felt like a really nice way of encapsulating his emotion at that point. Yeah, yeah so we're looking through, listening to loads and loads of different British tracks um, and going through the decades, you know, starting in the 50s and, and yeah. working forwards and then eventually got to this track, this Adam Faith track. And literally, uh, we were like, okay, well, let's try that with the film as it's cut at the moment, which is obviously a completely different track. So, you know, the, that sequence has changed massively depending upon what piece of music's been with it. Sure. And uh, we stuck the Adam Faith on and the lyrics are perfect. <laughs> and it... And we haven't changed a single. Really? Yeah, we haven't changed a single frame of it, and it was just like, oh, there we are. That yeah. music works amazingly. I, th- I think there were a couple of edits that were pulled like four or five frames. To be to be fair, but yeah. Yeah. that's it. It's just yeah. surgical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, was so tiny. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so trying to find those right tracks and and how important it is um, to find a piece of music that doesn't just you know give you the right sort of mood but also is actually saying something extra as well um, yeah. yeah I mean like actually and also I mean in the there's a piece of music that um, that Holly plays to Rob that we used twice and again that was a track that changed and changed and changed but we really liked the idea of how when you hear it first time round it has one meaning and then you hear it again and it has another meaning and when we eventually found the track that we used which is by Pearl and the Beard we um Initially, uh, they're a band that I sort of you know loved and just kind of like was on their mailing list, and it was their latest single, and they actually like put up this live version, and they're a three-piece um, who like play cello, guitar, and drums, and like the the way they play live is really really incredible, um, and they split up shortly after releasing that album, which is heartbreaking, um, but. Um, um, and that was what I sent you. I was like, "What about yeah. what about this?" And you were like, "Yeah, this is great." And then we kind of like sort of you know went to them and we'd like to use this, and they're like, "Yeah, here's the album version." Mm-hmm. And we were like, "Ah," oh. <laughs> and it's great, but great in a different way. And what we actually convinced them to do, which was so nice of them, was yeah. that we used the album version the first time and the second time. But halfway through the second time, when it becomes really there's a bit the second time when it becomes really really soft and romantic, and we actually mix between the two and so in the sequence when um, she's giving him a bath and it's just their performances are really touching and we just go to the live move into the live version and it's really subtle because it's really nicely recorded so you don't particularly ever go oh wait a minute what's this sudden change yeah I I certainly didn't catch it there's just something in the way in which Jeremy is singing which is so from the heart and so and like there's a, a because they're playing live there's that, that extra bit of tension in the way in which they're doing it and it just it's just magical it just really kind of like brings out this kind of 
vibe between um, Abby and Kian when they're playing that scene. It's, yeah. 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 And then sometimes lyrically you can be too on the nose. Yeah. So we have uh, yeah. the song that Rob's <laughs> listening to in the uh, in the storeroom uh, that Holly's like, what are you listening to? And uh, that comes back again later in the film. Yeah. So like the, the other one where we do it twice and the song's actually called Motorbiking and uh, the chorus... Well, and for those who haven't seen the film yet, and this isn't a spoiler, um, in that scene when we first hear it, he's discussing the motorbike accident he's just had. Yeah, um. Um, and uh, yeah, and the, yeah, the, he he might have been willing to uh, to to fall off his bike and and cause himself damage. Yeah, and uh, the song itself um, has a bit which uh, could be slightly too close to the story anyway, where it's you know. Uh, um, my friend, you know, it's basically my friend uh, was in a bit, it was in her. My friend just bought a brand new motorbike. He had a crash, fell off, and died. He went to the hospital and he's alive again! And uh, yeah, and th- th- those lyrics, you're like, okay, is that two on the nose? And for a while, we were a bit worried about that, but we were definitely like, well, motorbiking, the chorus, which is just motorbiking, motorbiking. <laughs> you're like, that is way too on the nose yeah. but the song itself like and the the uh the the drive that the bass line especially has yeah um going on in it that just really felt perfect for 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 that music and um yeah it was really nice to do a mix of the track where they've never actually done like a proper recording of it um because it's a really it's hard a really, one it's, it's, it's like and so it's a it, a band that we used to know re- really really well and they don't again they don't exist anymore sadly but this was like their kind of like set closer song and right. so it was like everything would kick off and it would end with like everyone smashing everything and like the singer would be out out on the floor yeah. writhing in pain and it was it was like it was masterful but obviously part of the joy of it is this real theatrical chaos sure. and yeah. it's very hard to then capture that on <laughs> yeah in a recording studio yeah. where you're like okay let's do another take of that you're like mm, you can't yeah, it's you not can't. worked yeah yeah and uh so they've done demos of it and so it was really nice to kind of bring out the best parts of that song the way that it's been recorded that's in the film and really gives you that energy that is there in the live set yeah um and i think yeah i think actually in terms of recordings of the song it's almost like uh the one that you're getting to hear on rob's headphones is kind of like the best one i think yeah it's like the closest to how it felt but yeah i mean that's the other nice thing about it is like in terms of like what score does it really is about bringing in the uh, you know the artistry of all the people who've made that piece of music, and it isn't necessary. It can often you can often confuse it with oh, it's about the audience knowing the track. Right. It's about the recognition. And what's been great about Nina is that actually, like two of the tracks that have had the most response from people have been that one, which was never released. It's a band that sadly folded before their first album was eventually released. You know, it's like yeah. no one knows them. And then there's another one that uh, which is in the trailer and is also in the film um, by like a two-piece from Minnesota who again like I just found on the internet and I, I'm not sure that they're playing anymore either and both of them have had other tracks that people are kind of like what's that song that's brilliant and it's what people are connecting to is not oh I know this band it's what's this music it's, it's like it's something I feel this yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah I suppose what, what the last thing to think about in terms of um, stuff that we've taken from it is that structure of where you kind of go like forgetting for a moment talking about like we always talk about we don't like to write in three acts we write in five and the difference between three or five you know you're kind of like it's 
Yeah, but anyway, beside that point, <laughs> when you look true. at, I know this. But you, <laughs> you're looking at. Um, I took theory. Oh my gosh. Uh, but you, uh, so you're, talk, you're looking at uh, train spotting, and basically you're going. The most important moment is the midpoint, mm. and actually that's when you know Renton changes, uh, and he's on a new path, and the film sets course and doesn't let go. It just goes in that exact direction. Yeah. And to be clear, like uh, you know, like if you time it out, the midpoint of the film is exactly the moment when he falls through the carpet. It's like bang on it. It's incredible. Yeah. It's, yeah. And um and that to us is is actually really important is the midpoint and finding the midpoint for Nina because it changed in the edit. Yeah. Um and part of that's because of, you know, we started focusing that sto- the story on Holly and realizing that her story was more was the most important one and was the one that's going to pull you through and realizing what the I think it was actually because we always sort of had that in our heads but I think we just got confused as to what the actual point at which she checked like what her midpoint is yeah and we convinced ourselves that it was um, with the parents yeah so she goes to see mm, yeah. yeah so she they, they, and so that's and that actually happens quite late on yeah and um the real turning point is, you know, when you talk about the film, you go, okay, so the story is about Holly. She's trying to help uh, Rob through his grief, and she's fallen in love with the dude. And the first time that they make love, Rob's uh, dead girlfriend Nina comes back um, and is all bloody and messed up in the bed with them, and essentially takes the piss out of them every time they try and get intimate. And um, the key turning point in the film is that Holly. Uh, I mean initially she does run away but uh, the second time she doesn't and the film's about well why has she stayed yeah mm-hmm. and uh, so then you're like oh that's that's the midpoint because up she to stays, that point yeah. she's not been staying and now she is and uh, what happens when you stay what happens when you stay in one of those relationships well guess what's coming to you yeah. you know you're kind yeah. of like now, now for the, the yeah now for the ride down the hill you're kind of um, and so structurally we kind of are following a similar path yeah in a way I mean, you know, we and we definitely go around the houses as well in terms of bouncing off in different ways, story-wise. Yeah, and again, we were really keen to do that. We were yeah. really, like, we were really adamant that we didn't want to kind of tell the story in a familiar way, and that we wanted to constantly have the audience feeling, "Where are we now? Why is this happening?" And it's like, particularly because it's like we knew that we had this big kind of like, well, Nina's going to appear, and that's quite a kind of like, whoa, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, but if you're doing that the rest of it can't be you can't drop into a rhythm and it's like but you you can't have like you know other dead people appear you know it's like so yeah. how, how you do have you to, you have to calibrate the strangeness you have to know exactly I mean you could I guess you could bring in other people but then you're into like an American werewolf situation or a truly madly deeply thing where yeah. the world becomes more important than the relationship yeah. and that's yeah you can't really do that yeah. satisfyingly and keep it in a in an intimate footing yeah so when did you realize that that was your, your that you know, the second thing had to be their relationship? Or was that always the point? Um, it was always the point, but it was kind of like that realisation of, I, I suppose, that, that's a lot of time when you talk... That's the hinge. I yeah, and when was, you talk yeah. about... That it stays about the two. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's about a character changing, I suppose, because, you know, when it was about the parents, it's about Holly re- starting to realise something about their relationship. Uh, whereas actually, the change in her is... I've committed to it. Yeah, it's like her relationship... I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like her relationship with Rob is actually secondary to her relationship with herself. Yeah. And the film is actually her journey from being... I, You know, people are... You know, my ex-boyfriend is saying I'm too vanilla and not dark enough. And mm-hmm. my, you know, the people I work with are saying I'm weird. And I want to be 
weirder than they think I am. I yeah. want, you know, I want this darkness in my life. There's this guy, he's dark and interesting. I want that in my life to... I now definitely have that in my life. Yeah. I, did I want that? Yeah, I'm not so sure, yeah. but I have this, you know, and it's like, that's what the journey of the film is. And the midpoint is, well, I'm sticking with this guy and I'm going to try and make this, you know, like it was th- that it's, it's her revelation to herself of, I've got the strength to come back into this and I want to stay here for me as much as I want to stay here for you. Mm. And it was rather than kind of like her realizing, mm, maybe there's a problem in my relationship with him. That's, Right. a secondary thing actually yeah. so you've actually done it it's a coming of age film and a film about someone who can't escape his past <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, exactly yeah. so yeah we took quite a lot from transporting that <laughs> <laughs> my thanks to Chris and Ben Blaine whose deliriously odd debut Nina Forever is available for rental and purchase on iTunes right now in North America if you're in the UK it's also available on Blu-ray and DVD with a few special features get it it's really something you can find Chris and Ben on Twitter at Blaine Brothers, all one word, and you can find Trainspotting on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate in the US, Entertainment One in Canada, and 4DVD in the UK. It's also streaming on Netflix in the US and Canada, and available for rental and purchase on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. And if you want to leave a review on iTunes, this week's phrase is Mother Superior. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you just too darn loud.